Welcome to Thinking Like a Lawyer, with your hosts, Ellie Mistal and Joe Patrice, talking about legal news and pop culture, all while thinking like a lawyer, here on Legal Talk Network. Hello, welcome to another edition of Thinking Like a Lawyer. I'm Joe Patrice from Above the Law, and with me, finally in the same room. We haven't been in the same room in a while. I have Ellie Mistal. It's been a while. How you doing, guys? How you doing, Joe? I am wearing my Make America Great underwear. Oh, yeah. Well, every pair of underwear is a Make America Great pair. Yeah, no, uh, so that's it. It's interesting that you... uh, you went that direction because today we are going to be talking a little bit about some election stuff and some voting uh, issues. But first, as we always do, we begin with Ellie complaining about something that probably isn't a real issue. Move the, on. The voting is not the voting is not what's grinding my gears today, Joe. What's grinding my gears today? Framing guilty people. So I've finally done my making a murderer homework, and I've done my homework on le- reading all the online. Um, objections to making a murderer, which is basically that the filmmakers didn't show the prosecution's very strong evidence about, but I don't care about that. The point is, is that whether or not you think the guy in making a murderer was innocent or guilty, the point of the documentary was to show how messed up the legal system is that convicted him in the first place. Very likely, even if you think he was guilty, it's it's probably the case that the cops in that situation in in, in uh, Wisconsin framed a guilty man if they didn't frame an innocent man. That becomes important because tonight, at least when we're recording tonight, when we're recording, um, it's actually been out probably by the time you guys are listening to this. Um, the FX na- uh, 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 channel is starting its OJ docudrama um, miniseries with a. Cuba Gooding Jr. playing playing O.J. Simpson. Um, and so now people are talking about the O.J. case again. And, which, and the O.J. case to me is another classic example where the cops most likely framed a guilty man. I don't see why conceptually this is a difficult thing for people to, to wrap their minds around, right? It is entirely possible for a person to commit a heinous act and then for the cops to come over the top and frame that person for the heinous act. And when that happens, our reaction needs to be an acquittal. Okay, I don't I don't care where the blood splatter was. I don't care if the glove fit. I care if the process was correct in convicting a person. And when the cops go out of their way to frame somebody, the process has failed. Yeah, I mean, I think there is obviously something to be said for that. Like it comes down to really a fundamental philosophical difference. Right. I think a lot of people view and I think that the media has reinforced the view that the role of criminal justice is to protect people from criminals, which in that situation, people would go the other way. You're a very enlightenment, original, ar- originalist argument that it's about protecting the people from the government accusing them. And whether they've done it or not, they should be free if the government doesn't meet its burden. And that's entirely reasonable. It's not, about, it's not about protecting people from the government accusing them. It's about protecting the people from the awesome power of the government right. no, no, that's to what destroy I'm their lives. Yeah, no, I'm, that's, that's what I'm saying. And that's a core fun philosophical difference. And I tend to come down more on your side of it even, but I... I understand you, why people think the other way. Do you think OJ should be in jail? I mean, yes, because he kidnapped a guy in Vegas to, at gunpoint oh. to get his thing back. I mean, do I think that he should have been in jail for the first set of murders? It, I agree that I don't think they made a case. I think that he now deserves to be in jail because they caught him. And because he killed those people. I mean, let's not I, – I, yeah. OJ killed those people, which is a terrible thing. But the, but the cops – but the cops – went did not the the state didn't make their case the cops framed him 
I think you had. I think you have to let people go when that happens. Yeah, I mean. So that's what's grinding my gears. That's. I mean, that's what's grinding the gears on the old white Bronco today. <laughs> I'm like, I'm like Al Cowling's in this car right now. Yeah, that's that's actually how I how I view our partnership. <laughs> you're the you're the Al Cowling's of this. I'm guess, Ellie, yo, Ellie. <laughs> you know who I am. Uh, let's talk about something that you know happened this decade. Uh, in particular, <laughs> something that happened last night. So we, as we're recording this, the Iowa caucuses have ended and we move on to the New Hampshire primary. But what we thought, especially given people were confused about the caucus process, a bunch of things came up that seemed curious. And even beforehand, and the real issue that kind of spawned this particular episode was beforehand, there were some accusations of some electoral shadiness. And we thought, People are starting to see these things in the media. It's worth revisiting all all this with a former guest of ours. We got Rick Hassan on the line. He's our he's the elector. Yeah, he's the election law blog uh, expert on all things election. So we brought him on to talk about some of the issues surrounding the Iowa caucus. Hey, Rick. Hi there. Hey. So I, let's just take these in order because I think the the thing that originally got me to email you in the middle of the night when I first saw it on the cable news was this this news story about Ted Cruz sending out a mailer to people, a kind of a voter report card to theoretically induce them to go to the caucus. Induce is a very nice way of putting it. Yeah. Um, and it, it, this whole thing kind of spawns from, spawned from some political science research that suggested that people are more likely to go out and vote if they feel that their neighbors are watching them and making sure that, you know, and judging them for not voting. But is this something that a campaign can really do? Like, I understand in the abstract, it may work, quote unquote, according to the political scientists. But is this legal? Uh, yes, I think it's legal, uh, but uh, but let's back up first and, and talk about this. Two problems with what Cruz did. Uh, one is putting his name on it or associating it enough with his campaign. He took credit for it. That's different than this coming in from some shady group. And so people might be shamed, but then about not voting, but then they might take it out on Cruz. So that seemed like not a smart way to do it. And the other thing is, at least according to some reports, there was a report uh, online at The New Yorker by Ryan Lizza saying that it had incorrect information. Everybody apparently was getting a C or F for not voting. Uh, not only are you trying to shame people, but if you're shaming them with false information, it actually could, could backfire. So putting aside the legalities, I'm not sure how smart that was as a campaign strategy. I think much smarter was Cruz sending texts to his uh, supporters during the Iowa caucuses indicating that Ben Carson was dropping out, which he wasn't. But that maybe that moved some people who were going to vote for Carson to, to vote for Cruz. Uh, but lots of stuff like this goes on during election season. It's just that Cruz put his fingerprints on it this time. You isn't this? But I, I guess I want to go back to the legality question. How is this not voter intimidation? I mean, uh, let, let, let's ratchet it up a little bit. Let's say that first of all, let's ratchet it up. Let's just say that Ted Cruz was black. Would that be voter intimidation just by changing the skin color? Let's ratchet it up further. Let's let's say that I let's say that Ted Cruz. Let's say that the black de- Ted Cruz goes to your house and says, "Here's your voter report card. You should go out and vote." Well, so first of all. The anti-intimidation rules uh, in the Voting Rights Act and going back to, you know, even after the period of the Reconstruction Amendments, th- those were aimed at stopping people from preventing others from voting. 
right? You know, burning a cross, keeping people right, away right. from the polling place. This is actually trying to shame someone, I would say not intimidate them, into voting. And so I don't think it fits into that box. There's also no federal law that says that you can't shame people or mislead them. When Obama was a senator, he actually proposed a law that would have made it illegal to to pass out false or misleading campaign information. It never passed, but he introduced it. Even if something like that passed, it would raise First Amendment issues, because who's going to be determining whether or not something is misleading as opposed to false, right? We have a standard for falsity. It would be used right. for defamation or uh, other tips, similar types of actions. But who's to judge misleading? It sounds so vague. I just don't think we could even constitutionally have a law against something that's misleading. Ben Carson, you know, is going to go home and change his clothes in Florida after this after this <laughs> caucus. Make your own decision about whether or not that means he's going to drop out. Yeah. I mean, my my issue with the possibility of and here's how I was going to ratchet it up, sort of uh, my ratcheting it up was the line. There's kind of this scary line at the end of the mailer about how a follow-up notice may be issued after Monday's caucuses. It kind of suggests go do this or else some bad thing is going to happen to you and some bad thing that will defame you in the eyes of your neighbors in some way. Uh, and that's that's what struck me as though it might be, even though it's not trying to get people to not vote, which is how most of our laws are oriented, that it might cross into some other tricky legal ground where you're you're basically threatening to make people look bad in light of their neighbors. Yeah, although if you're distributing true information, which right. this may not have been, that's the right, that's so, one so other assume, thing. Yeah, yeah. Assume it's accurate. I'm okay. guessing I had no intention. I I doubt the Cruz campaign will care about Iowa unless he actually gets the nomination. And then he'll care about Iowa again to try and win the general election. You know, I doubt he was would even follow up. But even so, if you if you provide truthful information, this is, you know, you think about some of these riddles that we talk about in law school about blackmail. And, you know, why is it that withholding truthful information or threatening to disclose truthful information could be a crime, right? So it does raise some interesting issues. But again, you're trying to shame people into voting. You're disclosing public information about whether they voted. I, I just don't think it fits in that box, mm -hmm. nor, nor do I think it would be a good road to go down for us to be regulating this kind of campaign speech because I worry about the whoever would regulate it being maybe manipulated or self-interested. You know, hard to know what it would look like to do something like that. This kind of reminds me of those, uh, which I know you were involved with some of this when it was going on, the ballot box selfie cases uh, where people were arguing that you, well, people had laws where you couldn't take pictures of you voting somehow because that could be a pressure. Uh, and that's, it was, the, it was in that kind of weird shady area that's not quite illegal and not quite kosher where I thought this was, this was falling. Yeah. I think the ballot selfie issue raises a different question. I'm actually, I, I think that laws that bar ballot selfies are constitutional because they make it harder to sell your vote, right? It's not about intimidation as much as it is about, well, I, if I want to swing an election, I could try to bribe you, but if you go into the, you know, the, the secret uh, ballots at the polling uh, place, I can't verify how you voted. We know when voter fraud does happen, it happens almost always with absentee ballots, which can be collected or stolen. 
uh, you can verify how somebody voted. So I think I think it's a totally different issue with this. I think there's kind of an ickiness factor to what Cruz did. It's maybe unpleasant, and as as I started, it may be bad tactics, but I don't think that makes it illegal. Hmm. I hear what you guys are saying, but man, if if the Black Panther Party shows up during the general and starts going around in black neighborhoods with a van and some guns saying "Voter die," um, the Republicans are going to have a problem with that. <laughs> yeah, I suppose that forcing someone to do something with threat of physical violence would be a problem. Uh, this is pretty tame, right? It's just trying to shame you. I mean, the, the strongest legal claim I think here would be a claim for defamation if, in fact, the information is false. So you're accused of not voting and you voted. You know, if that's the case, it's possible to try a common law defamation claim. But, uh, you know, one of the pieces I read ended with a disabled voter who said, I can't believe Cruz is coming after me. I can't physically get to the polls. And, you know, so that makes Cruz look bad. It also makes the caucuses look bad, by the way, which is, I think, a much bigger issue. I think the whole caucus process is very undemocratic. Yeah, I was just going to say that's a great segue, because the next thing we wanted to talk to you about was how do you feel about caucuses generally? Kill them. <laughs> Aw, I like caucuses. I think it's OK. I'm going to I'm going to do my best small D Democrat argument for caucuses. Yes, we know that they, dep- they depress voter t- turnout. And yes, they are complicated. And yes, this is not what, you know, this is not what the founders had in mind. But there is something I think nice and Americana and positive about getting together as part of your community, standing up it, without, the, without the secrecy of the ballot, standing up and saying, I am for X, I am for Y, being counted amongst, amongst your community members, being, allowed, uh, being argued by your community members. No, you should really think about voting for Y. No, you should really think about voting for Z. It's as close as we're ever going to get to consensus voting, which, uh, you know, is what the Romans did. That's, that's well, the best I can do. Yeah, well, for, for, first of all, uh, the Republican caucus in Iowa is not like that at all. You basically right. show up and you vote a secret ballot. So you're only talking about that on the Democratic side. So yeah, here, are, here are some people who are disenfranchised. People who are disabled and can't physically get to the polling place. People who have to work during that time. Right? There's no absentee ballot. There's no other way. People who have to travel or are otherwise stuck outside of their, their home. People are stuck in a snowstorm. Everybody's disenfranchised uh, by this. So I don't like that. I mean, we can argue about whether the secret ballot is good or bad. I don't know how much deliberation actually takes place in these things. It's also not very practical in larger areas. I can't imagine where I, where I live in Los Angeles going to a caucus with hundreds of my neighbors who I don't know and try, you know, them trying to convince me. So I, I just find it profoundly undemocratic. And the last thing I'd say, and you can go back and read some of the stories I wrote on this in 2008 and 2012, is that in lots of places, the caucuses are just run by the parties and they're run really unprofessionally. You know how last night we were stuck at 94% because some of those precinct captains went home, went to sleep, they didn't call in their votes. It's just not done. (laughs) It's more of a room for error. So I I think the caucuses, it sounds nice, sounds, you know, nice in theory, but I think in our modern democracy with our large constituencies, I think shut up and vote. Yeah, I will say uh, I kind of come and just just for listeners. Joe is from Iowa. Well, now that's where I was going to go with this. And I'm I mean, from I lived there till I was five. But so I was I wasn't really caucusing much, but I do have family there and stuff. And so I can kind of come down in the middle of this question. I I think there is there's something nice about it. And there are a lot of things that that Ellie said, but it is. And this is to go to Rick's point about you couldn't do this in L.A. It, 
it's very unique to Iowa that you could pull this off in any kind of an efficient way. Because as a state with a mostly agricultural base, people aren't often working in the winter. Uh, that's why that's why when Iowa gets to go to the Rose Bowl, they always sell out the Rose Bowl because everybody in the state can go out there because no one's actually doing work while the while it's winter. So it's a unique thing that is only makes Iowa even remotely manageable this way. If you did this in any kind of a quasi urban area, it would fall apart fast. That kind of segues to me, though. Doesn't doesn't that really get to, to a larger point here is is couldn't we have this? this agrarian voting system, if you will, and have that still exist as part of our American tradition, but just not have it be so goddamn important, right? Because, because my, the, the problem then, and I, Rick makes excellent points about the massive disenfranchisement that this system can produce. But I mean, even if we didn't have the caucus system, we would still be giving a lot of power to a farm state with no black people in it to choose our presidential nominees. Maybe the, the way to get around this question is to de-emphasize Iowa's importance in the process as opposed to throwing Iowa's process out. Right. Well, I've always been a supporter of the rotating regional primaries idea. Divide the country into four or five different sections. Every presidential election cycle, you do a different order in terms of who goes first. You know, so one time it's the Southeast, another time it's the Southwest, another time it's the Northeast and the Midwest. And this, I think, would be a fair way to do it. The problem is getting there. Everybody has to pledge their fealty to uh, Iowa, New Hampshire going first or else they're you know, dead in the water as a presidential candidate. But I really would love to see that change. I just don't know how it happens. And, you know, I, I've thought about that before, too. And then I worry about from a campaign finance perspective, which is already bad enough. But one of the advantages of going to Iowa and New Hampshire are they're small and you can you can test out the viability of a candidate relatively cheaply in theory, as opposed to trying to win California out of the gate. Obviously, Jeb Bush didn't do it cheaply and and but did successfully prove how viable he was. <laughs> uh, he spent thousands of dollars per voter, you know, when when it comes down to it. But the, you know, the thing is, our, our elections have become much more national, too. Yeah, this, you know, the ground game mattered. I think that's why Ted Cruz and Hillary Clinton were able to get their wins. And so maybe that's a good test. You know, can you organize something like, uh, you know, getting these people to the polls? Um, but if you were designing a system from scratch for how we would choose our leader, I don't know if this is where uh, you'd start. Ellie's point about the lack of representativeness. I mean, Iowa and New Hampshire are really not representative of the United States. I'd love to see, uh, you know, a more diverse state be one that goes first. Illinois seems to be America in a microcosm. Rick, what do you what do you feel about coin flips? <laughs> uh, well, so money actually did determine the outcome of an election last night. <laughs> <laughs> money, money got involved and Sanders lost to the one percent. It's exactly what he said. Yeah. <laughs> so lost to the one cent, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah, no, I think that, uh, you know, there are going to be close elections. I was just flabbergasted last night by the CNN coverage. You know, is it going to be Clinton? Is it going to be Sanders? Is it gonna, as if it actually mattered for anything more than bragging rights, because they're getting the same number of delegates. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, it's, it's all about the, you know, the kind of the PR balance. And I think that's really overrated. I think there are kind of systemic reasons why Hillary Clinton goes into the next few elections after uh, Iowa, New Hampshire, with a great advantage over Sanders. But this kind of horse race coverage and getting down to, you know, 
who's going to get the 45th delegate and the other one will have 43 delegates. It, it really is, uh, was just a lot of media hype rather than uh, having a lot of, I think, political validity. I couldn't, I couldn't agree more. I couldn't agree more. I don't, I don't, what, what happened in Iowa between Bernie and Hillary, they tied. Okay. And that, and that, Speaks well of Bernie in certain ways, speaks well of Hillary in certain ways, but it was a tied election and we can move on. And part of, I mean, you were saying like, how do we ever get to a point where Iowa and New Hampshire maybe are de-emphasized in some way? I think part of that rests on the media. Like just because they go first doesn't mean we have to care. Not every year do we even care about Iowa. The only reason why we cared about it this particular election cycle as much as we did is because it was hotly contested by by significant um, candidates. That isn't always the case. Sometimes, you know, and you can make the argument that one of Trump's biggest uh, weaknesses right now was that he decided to contest Iowa. If he had just ignored it, he'd be in much better shape today. But as you say, Rick, it, the the emphasis on the horse race is why a state like Iowa and a state like Ham- New Hampshire become even more important than they should be. I do think that whoever goes first does serve a kind of coordination function. So if you think about Rubio, Kasich, Bush, and Christie as competing for a similar pool of voters, well, this now tells voters to coordinate around Rubio, which is why Rubio is getting as much, if not more, attention than Ted Cruz uh, going into here. But it doesn't have to be Iowa doing that. It has to be somebody has to go first. But I think it's having that function. It struck me more interesting than the horse race or or anything like that was how the two campaigns responded to it, because Hillary came out and said, I well, she didn't use these words, but she more than more than insinuated I've won, whereas Bernie came out and said, we've tied. And I thought that was the more interesting thing was just like how clearly different the goals were for the two the two camps like Bernie's people were super psyched to tie and Hillary, for whatever reason, feels that if this wasn't a win, it was going to be a problem. But that's because of the horses. It's because yeah. if she didn't win Iowa, she was going to go down 0-2 as, yeah. again, as, if there's, as if there's a scoreboard before a Super Tuesday. Right. Well, you know, cable news uh, uh, has – and Politico and all these other sites, they have a lot of time to fill. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know – what else are they going to talk about? They're going to obsess about it. You know? And I, I, I do think that the fundamentals matter more. It matters a lot more that Hillary Clinton is locking up these superdelegates. Right. And, you know, they're, they're doing kind of the, the, the stuff on the ground to mobilize the voters, get them registered. That stuff matters a lot more, I think, uh, than, than all of this chatter. You know, you mentioned superdelegates, which she's got to wipe up because, you know, among other reasons – Bernie's not, in fact, part of the Democratic Party, but um, oh yeah, yeah, there, there's that part. But the whole delegate thing, and this is something I've been thinking about, and I don't know, I've never really been able to ask anyone about it, so uh, we'll just talk about it here. One thing that I thought has been an important issue for the Sanders campaign is not necessarily winning the election, but winning delegates so that there are people on the floor, and you know helping draft platforms and so on and so forth who have a slightly dip, you know, a more left leaning approach. I, I could almost think that people backing Sanders care as much about that as they do about who, who ultimately ends up winning once Hillary hits her firewall. Yeah, I think that's right. So, you know, uh, Sanders raised another 20 million. He's going to raise a lot more. He's got some excited people. I, I see no reason why Sanders drops out before the right. convention, even after Hillary passes the number of delegates she needs to get this uh, nomination. 
because uh, he has a message and he's trying to move her to the left. And so far he's doing that. We'll see how much she moves back to the right, assuming she gets the nomination. But they want to have a role in the convention and they want to have a role. And, and she's going to want to have the support of these fired up Sanders people. Yeah, I don't know if you saw this moment last night where Clinton was speaking. This is on CNN. Clinton was speaking and over at the Sanders headquarters when Clinton said she was a progressive. Some, they, they're chanting liar, liar. Uh, yeah. So yeah. she's got a lot of catching up to do among those hardcore Sanders people. And I think that that's you know, going to be an important part of coalescing that will happen after she locks it up if she does lock it up. I'll I'll confess that on Twitter, the second after she said she was a progressive, I jokingly tweeted out, Hillary's a progressive? Well, Trump is now an evangelical, so I guess anything's possible. <laughs> it, it it just seemed like such an odd thing for her to say after working so hard to kind of push that group to the side a couple weeks ago. Yeah, uh, I, I, I think she's just not as good at faking it as some other candidates. <laughs> you know, when she says she's a progressive, you know, it's hard to believe her. But I think, you know, it's not because it's not because other politicians are more genuine. She's just not as good of an actor. Yeah. Rick, I, have, I, I want to close with a, with a money primary question. Um, is there anything that Sanders is because you brought up Sanders war chest at this point. Sanders would be able to raise this money in a Citizens United free world. Is that correct? Well, if, if that decision was overturned tomorrow, the Sanders campaign would, would keep on raising th- this kind of cash, right? Yeah, sure. able to. As would the Clinton campaign. Uh, both Clinton and Sanders are being supported by super PACs. Sanders is disavowing them, but is still getting advantage from like the National Nurses Association. That, that really wouldn't change, you know, the kind of the small donor model. Uh, but I do think that some other things would change. So, for example, Jeb Bush, he's only still in this race because of super PACs. That is, he's not going to win because of the super PAC money, but he gets a second and a third and a fourth chance to make his case because of the super PAC money. We know that Jeb Bush's donors, 75% of them, have maxed out. That is, he doesn't have anywhere to go unless he gets some new donors. Compare that to Sanders, where he says the average contribution is $27. He's got a lot of room to go back to people. This was the Obama model. So one of the things that super PACs are doing, and this is an argument I make in my uh, new book, Plutocrats United, is that super PACs are giving a chance for the candidates that are supported by one or two billionaires to, to get another few bites at the apple. And, and that's disturbing to me. It's not because they're popular. It's because... Some billionaire likes them. Well, you know, and then that raises what I think is a troubling development of the last two elections, which is if you're and I think it's safe to say that all three of us are people who are very concerned about Citizens United and super PAC spending. Is it is it kind of bad for our our narrative that between Newt Gingrich getting all the Shelley Adelson's money and now Jeb Bush finishing with, I think, as many votes as I got in Iowa, <laughs> uh, that, that it's giving people the ability to say, oh, come on, why are you so worried? Look, the people who get all the money still don't do, any, do well. That's right. And I think that uh, it makes a very easy case that money doesn't matter. And I think, yeah. uh, so besides the fact that money matters in terms of making it much more likely that a candidate is elected, even if it's not dispositive, 
And it makes it much more likely in smaller races. Throw a million dollars in the city council race and watch what happens compared to a presidential race. But the other thing that money buys you is access to be able to get things that you want to to get done. And so I'll just give you one example. Uh, There was a story in the New York Times a few weeks ago about the 2,000-page omnibus spending bill that Congress had to pass to fund the government for the next year. In that 2,000-page bill, Harry Reid was instrumental in getting 54 words inserted into that bill, which saved certain gaming and real estate interests a billion dollars in taxes. That's how money matters. It's not going to make people buy a product they don't want, but it lets you sell, trying to sell more things to the American people and also lets you get the policy you want and block the policy you want much more than if you didn't have that entree through your millions of dollars. You're making the, the excellent point here about Jeb. It's giving him it's giving him another bite at the apple. He's not, as you just said, people have, have seen Jeb and they're not buying him, but he is still sucking up oxygen that could be going to other candidates at this point. And he may be, you know, helping to prepare the path for Trump by having his super PAC beat up on all the other alternatives. Money matters, just not in the way that people think in a kind of oversimplified money buys elections way. Unless, as you say, we're talking about the city council, in which case money buys the election. <laughs> It can. It can have much more of an effect. Uh, and even the threat of money can have a huge effect. Are you going to oppose uh, or are you going to support Internet gaming if you know that Sheldon Adelson could have a super PAC coming after you tomorrow? Or you know, one of the things that I was talking about last night with my family as O'Malley was dropping out, think about all of the people who didn't run against Hillary because of her war chest, right? Bernie had, had is doing grassroots and he's doing a great job, but you know Hillary could have gotten a much a much more substantial primary challenger if people hadn't been afraid of her money. Yeah, although you know there is uh, there's a question of candidate quality. Look on the Republican side; there are a lot of those people running that shouldn't be running. Um, so kind of pick your poison. Uh, <laughs> you've got you know you you have a kind of small field on the Democratic side. The $100 million Jeb Bush fund didn't scare away the Republicans on the Republican side. Um, so, it, again, I think it's, it's, just, it's hard to, to say exactly how money makes a difference in terms of these presidential races, which are kind of overdetermined. But really, look at Congress, look at state legislatures, look at city councils, and see what they're doing and where the money is. And that's where you really see the influence of money in politics. Well, great. Thank you so much again for coming on. Rick Hassan, he's a lecture law expert, and he did mention, but I'll mention again, uh, he has a new book out, so go pick that up. Also, let's see, what else? Well, I've got to say a bunch of stuff about our podcast. Yes, uh, if you aren't subscribed, you should be subscribed to this, and so it can be downloaded every time we have a new episode. You should like it, give it reviews, you should follow us all on Twitter, and read our stuff on Above the Law and ATL Redline. i I haven't given the speech in so long. I'm, trying, I'm forgetting all the things that I have to say at the end of every episode. Yeah, it's pretty easy to find us, though. Yeah. All right. Great. All right. Well, thanks, everybody, for listening, and uh, we'll talk to you in the future. If you'd like more information about what you've heard today, please visit LegalTalkNetwork.com. You can also find us at AboveTheLaw.com, ATLRedline.com, iTunes, RSS, Twitter, and Facebook. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer.